These are the oldest stories, online at oldeststories.net. When we last left David, he was a warrior, but not a king. Today he'll remain a warrior and become a king. To refresh our minds, ever since leaving the service of King Saul, David has wandered as a mercenary, quite possibly also a bandit, serving sometimes himself and sometimes the enemies of Israel. His final mercenary service is to the Philistine king of Gath, ironically his first enemy as well, but we looked at David's chronicler's protestations that he never once attacked any Israelites during this service. David then is said to have been absent during the fighting at Mount Gilboa, the battle which would claim King Saul's life, even though he did march partway there with the enemy force. But at this point we get an interesting little tale. Having been sent out from the Philistine army, David finds himself in the town of Ziklag, where apparently he and his men had been based. During his absence, a raiding group of Amalekites showed up and stole all the families of David's soldiers for slaves, including David's own plural wives. Naturally, the band chases after them, leaving one-third of the force to, behind to guard the town, and with the blessings of God, they're able to overcome the enemy, slaughter them to the last man, and recover not only their lost families, but also they steal a bunch of extra plunder from the defeated Amalekites. There is a somewhat famous story in here that the men who were guarding the baggage got the same share of plunder as the fighters, an edict which was apparently still in force when this book was written, an indicator that it was in fact written at some iteration of this during the reign of one of the later kings of Judah, and while exactly when is heavily disputed, the reign of King Josiah is a popular guess for reasons we're going to get into when we get to Josiah. But what's more historically important is what David does with the rest of the plunder after sharing it out among his men. He goes next to all the Israelite towns that had sheltered him and his men during the last however many years and gives them shares of wealth as well. Now this is fascinating, especially because the timing is so very unclear here. Timing aside, this sort of handing out gifts is the sort of thing that a king, or at least a local big shot, would be expected to do after a military campaign. David is, at the very least, establishing himself as a power player in the region. But if he's doing this before Saul is dead, or before it's known down south that Saul has died, then by accepting wealth from David in exchange for supporting him, they are implicitly joining David's side in the early phases of an open rebellion against the king. Is David hoping that the Philistine attack would weaken Saul in the north, leaving the south open for a play by David? Alternately, this could be happening after Saul is dead, in which case David is pretty clearly campaigning for kingship by showing off both a military victory and his ability to distribute largesse to important interest groups within the nation.
Either way, David in this story is pretty explicitly campaigning for kingship at this point, which either way makes it fortunate for him that Saul never makes it off Mount Gilboa alive, which radically simplifies his claim to the throne. The story itself suggests that it wasn't until he returned to Ziklag that he heard of Saul's death, meaning that this parade of treasures would have been while he still thought the king was alive, making him an active rebel. But the narrative is unclear enough about the timing, since such a tour would have taken some amount of time that it may have happened later on. Anyway, David's hanging out at Ziklag when a soldier from the Battle of Mount Gilboa arrives with the sad, sad news as well as the official crown plucked off of Saul's dead head, no doubt hoping for a reward to allow David a pretty substantial boost in his well-known aspirations for kingship. I mean, you don't just bring this guy a crown unless you think he's going to do something with it. The narrative then tells us that this soldier was an Amalekite, which some people think may have been a later excuse. After all, if David kills this wounded soldier, who, other than David and those closely loyal, would be able to verify the story? Why, the skeptic asks, would a hated Amalekite be among Saul's army in the first place? But of course, we just saw David playing mercenary among the Moabites and Philistines, and over in Chronicles, it starts off David's reign with a long listing of his most important soldiers, many of whom were from all over the place. Canaanite armies were super diverse because the region was super diverse. Now, how that played in with Yahwistic religious customs is not explored in Scripture beyond the general warning that mixing with Gentiles is an abomination to God. Next up, David sings a song for Saul and Jonathan. This whole musical David thing, now that's an interesting detail. One-third of the hymns in the book of Psalms, each of which would have originally been a musical composition, are credited to David, and a solid fraction of the rest are credited to David's court musicians. Plus, we have scattered all throughout mentions of David singing, dancing, and playing the harp, so it seems likely that even if the biblical narrator is flattering the talents of David by inflating him, or even if some of the psalms are misattributed, David probably was just a musical guy. Not a lot of historical significance to that, but plenty of other cultures do have celebrated warrior poets like this, including the very nearby Arabs. And it's kind of neat. And then with the musical interlude completed, David asks God if he should conquer a city. And God says, yes, go conquer a city. Go take Hebron. Of course, it's not really a conquest. He's just taking control of the city. He likely already has a good power base in the region, and moving in is a natural next step now that he is contending for the crown. Plus, Hebron is perhaps the most significant city in the tribal region of Judah, and by now David is certainly the most significant Judahite leader. 
But the form of David asking is indicative of how omens were often asked of gods in the Near East. First, he asks if he should go up to some city. And this would have been a binary augury, basically the equivalent of flipping a coin to answer yes, no, or usually there's also an unsure option in there. We don't get the details in scripture, but the formula of these verses very strongly matches the established formula of royal omen texts from the Babylonians and Hittites and plenty of others as well. Once it's been decided that he should go into a city, the more lengthy omen texts will describe the process of listing through all the valid candidate cities and the yes-no result of each, while abbreviated omen texts like this passage will only mention the place that was ultimately decided on. He would have most likely been employing one of his priests here to use the ephod, which we discussed last episodes, and as, a, as an aside, why don't modern Christians and Jews use divination anymore? I genuinely have no idea. It is at least as scriptural as exorcisms and speaking in tongues. And my understanding is that the prohibition in Deuteronomy 18.10 is extremely hard to translate and in any case not consistent with practice in the Old Testament and well into the New Testament periods when we see all kinds of things decided by lot, including all the way into the New Testament, they decide the 12th apostle after Judas dies uh, by lot, which is essentially a cleromantic divination, allowing God to decide these things. But anyway, aside from the ephod, it's a good thing that David is establishing his center and building up power bases nearby because we're about to find out that David isn't the only contender for the throne. Indeed, perhaps not even the primary candidate. You see, for all the power centers that David has so far secured, it seems the most important, after God in heaven, is a fellow named Abner, son of Ner who was the commander of the army when Saul died. Because Saul spent his entire life making nothing but war, Israel at this point is pretty much just the army and whatever is conquered. Abner is in charge of the primary lever of power in the kingdom, and Abner makes the extremely standard and sensible decision to throw his weight behind a son of Saul a fellow named Eshbaal, who later gets remembered as Ishbosheth. In a situation where the king and presumed heir die at the same time, it isn't clear why Eshbaal is chosen from among Saul's remaining sons, but he might be the oldest, and whatever the politics within the house of Kish, we don't hear about any other valid candidates. And really, calling him another contender in a civil war, while it is the traditional reading, it's a bit misleading. This isn't a civil war. This, is, this isn't a struggle for the throne. Ishbaal is the legitimate heir. He's supported by the army. 
and he's crowned by the vast majority of Israelite tribes. His challenger is just a Habiru mercenary from one tribe, from Judah, which happens to have a feud with Ishbaal's tribe, Benjamin, ever since the time of Judges. Down in the relatively less important and less wealthy southern area, and this guy's been rebelling against Saul for a number of years at this point, and he's actively worked as a bandit in the pay of Israel's enemies. He's attacked and pillaged Israelite settlements like Nabal's estate. This isn't so much a civil war or a contested succession as it is a continuation and intensification of David's personal rebellion. We're going to talk a lot more about the future split between northern Israel and southern Judah, but the reality is that the south is really just one tribe, and later it's got some Levites, and ironically it ends up with Benjamin as well. But we're already seeing that this split between all the northern tribes that are quite happy to work together against the prideful lion Judah. And though this split and its causes and dynamics will change over time, it's never going away. The descendants of this rupture right here are still going to be an issue in the time of Jesus with the Samaritan-Israelite feud. It's eventually going to end when the Romans march in and kick out all the Jews. The Samaritans, meanwhile, they're going to get to stay until they end up rebelling against the Byzantines in the late 400 CE, and then they're going to be mass slaughtered, and then sometimes converted, and then the Muslims are going to show up, and that'll put paid to pretty much all of them. There's still a few Samaritans left, about 800 of them, but it's, it's not that impressive. Anyway, we don't know much about Ishbaal, the son of Saul, but that name right away should raise some big warning flags that there's some stuff going on that we don't know about. We've seen that names always have meaning in the ancient world. And Ishbaal means either the flame of the pagan god Baal or, very potentially, the flame of the Lord. Because, of course, the word Baal is the word Lord which is why the Canaanite god was called Baal, because he was, in the Canaanite view, seen as the lord of some or many things. The traditional view here is that Saul turned away from God at the end of his life, due to his wickedness, of course, perhaps thinking that if the priest of Yahweh had abandoned him for David, he would, in turn, abandon the God of Israel. Except we don't actually ever see Saul rejecting his faith. We're never told he worships Baal. Uh, he certainly does act immorally and fails to understand the will of God at certain times. But, I mean, isn't that the story of basically everyone in the Christian and Jewish faiths? Imperfect men trying their best to follow a perfect God. After all, even in the final battle, he's still consulting the priests of Yahweh that he still has around him. And unlike Solomon, or the later kings, no mention is ever made of him following other gods, aside from that incident of the witch of Endor. And he goes to that witch, in hiding, having banned all of these other witches, 
And he's doing it in hopes of getting his link back to the prophet Samuel and to Yahweh. Now, another idea has been proposed, which is that Saul, like most Yahwists at this time, was not actually a monotheist. And indeed, perhaps no one, or maybe no one but a small segment of the priesthood at this point, actually were monotheists. Instead, he could be what's called a henotheist, where he believes in and worships principally a single god, but acknowledges the existence of other gods. Now, the important thing about henotheism is that it's uh, the fuzzy boundary line between monotheism and polytheism, and there exists a spectrum of possible ideas that Saul could find himself in, especially if his understanding of faith may have changed over the course of his life, as it does for many people. And so, his first son could be named Jonathan, meaning Yahweh gives. His next, according to the genealogy in Chronicles, could be named My King is Salvation, Melchishua. The third could be named Fire of Baal, and the fourth could be named Abinadab, Father of Nobleness, or perhaps My Father is Willing. And of course, Jonathan himself would have a son named Mary Baal, which is either Baal contends or Baal is my advocate. And so, this could have been a whole family of good, faithful Yahwists, but who also sought after Baal from time to time, rather like someone who, we could say, religiously watches football every Sunday, but then also goes to a book club once a month because there's more to life than just football. A third possibility is that the Baal referred to in Meribal and Ishbaal is the same Lord that appears in capital letters in your modern Bible. Lord, as a title of Yahweh, may have been, in some Israelite traditions, especially in the north, considered a valid epithet for the one and only God of creation at certain points in history. We already discussed this with the golden calf imagery, but the idea of Yahweh as Lord is a natural enough one that we have it here in English. Except in the Canaanite languages, Baal was also already the title of various Canaanite gods. Syncretism where one god takes on the attributes of another, was already extremely common in the ancient world, and Baal especially had a tendency to, like, eat other local gods in syncretistic terms. And in fact, there is some speculation that Yahweh syncretized successfully with the Canaanite god El at some point, and may have been in the process of syncretizing with Baal as well, who also had bull imagery. And so Ishbaal may have been a name selected by a father who genuinely thought himself to be a faithful worshiper of Yahweh, just picking another title for him, the way we today might use Lord, Heavenly Father, or God interchangeably in prayers. But of course, Baal did not end up syncretizing with Yahweh at least in part because at some point this was vigorously opposed by some part of the priestly factions. 
Obviously, during the time of Saul and David, the word Baal could be spoken in polite society, and people could invoke the name of the god in naming their children, whether they meant a syncretized Yahweh or a separate Canaanite god. And then by about 400-ish BCE, when the chronicler was writing, the word was apparently usable again because we see it in the genealogies. But for some reason, during the writing specifically of the book of 2 Samuel, because we don't see this happening anywhere else in the Bible, the very word Baal became taboo for everything but place names. Ishbaal gets renamed for this story into Ishbosheth, meaning man of shame. And later, Mary Baal becomes Mephibosheth, mouth of shame. We don't have enough details in this part of the story to really pick out what's going on with the evolving worship of God, but we're going to keep looking at these little hints as they get dropped. Anyway, the whole point of all this is that Ishbosheth, whose name is actually Ishbaal, is king of Israel, like straight up, pretty much king of everything that his father had conquered, except for rebellious Judah, at least for the next two years, even though he doesn't usually get counted among the kings of Israel. We hear almost nothing about his actual reign, though, and nearly the entire section of his story is actually focused on the general and kingmaker Abner. Once it becomes clear that there will be some sort of armed struggle, David's general Joab and Ishbaal's general Abner meet at Gibeon with armies at their backs. They begin by having a contest of champions, but all the champions kill each other so then they just have a regular battle anyway. The battle is vicious, apparently, but the Judahites are victorious, and Abner and his men are routed. Joab and his brothers pursue to cut down the fleeing enemies and take Abner's head, but Abner stops, turns around, and gives a speech about the futility of war and the misery of killing, and they all pretty much just agree to get along for a while after that. Interestingly, the text notes that David's army took 19 casualties and Abner's army took 390, which is not terribly unreasonable for this sort of small-scale warfare. Then more fighting ensues, probably at a relatively low level with extremely low troop counts. Over time, Abner is becoming more powerful in the north, and a rumor circulates that Abner is sleeping with one of the royal concubines. And Ishbaal gets mad at Abner, driving him down to Hebron, where David is holding court. Now, following this, we get some drama. Abner secures David's former wife, Michal, from Ishbaal. Then he joins David's cause. Then David's general, Joab, kills Abner in a family feud. Then David composes a song for Abner because this could have been a major diplomatic incident, but fortunately, two people with unclear motives sneak in and assassinate Ishbaal while he sleeps. And then to show that David was not involved and definitely didn't hire those assassins, David has them executed and buries Ishbaal in David's capital of Hebron. 
And this is where, more or less, we move from one source of information to two sources. The account of David in Chronicles skips over a lot of the political wrangling and personal drama of David's career. That would be the fun, meaty bits, to instead focus on listing names of people and religious events, which, let's be honest, are far more important. Long lists of names may be boring, but this is how political careers get made or broken in the 400s BCE when Chronicles is being written. But it's still significant, and we're going to be using both in parallel. Written maybe 200 to 400 years after the Deuteronomist, who also wrote Samuel and Kings, it may be drawing at least in part on what we now have in the Bible, but it's clearly also taking some set of court records which existed back then, but which do not exist now. And so it's a valuable second witness, largely independent and sometimes conflicting. It begins with David being acclaimed king of Israel in Hebron following the death of Saul, and then the next event in both accounts is the conquest of Jerusalem. Now it appears that David has ruled over Israel from Hebron for five years, with the two years before that being that contested period of rule. There isn't much detail given for the conquest of Jerusalem. In the Samuel account, it mentions that the Jebusites taunted the Israelites, so David ordered their heads chopped off, or other translations say, ordered them attacked from an underground shaft. The language is apparently quite difficult here. The Chronicles account tells us that Joab, who's the one who killed Abner just a little bit ago, was the first over the walls, or potentially the first through this underground shaft, and thus accorded a position as army commander. This is a bit puzzling chronologically, as Samuel had Abner killed by army commander Joab prior to the capture of Jerusalem. But this sort of minor confusion is something we find all the time in ancient records and usually can't do more than shrug and wonder about it. And sometimes there's a clever solution for how they're both right, like maybe Joab had been disgraced after the killing of Abner, and this is how he regained his generalship, but more often just one source has the chronology wrong because that happens in ancient records. Anyway, it's clear why David conquered Jerusalem, pretty much because he was conquering everything nearby to expand his kingdom. What's not clear from the text is why David moved his capital there. The story says that God told David to establish his capital in Hebron, but provides no clear endorsement of Jerusalem until much later, the end of David's life when the Temple Mount is selected, at which point he'd been ruling there for who knows how long, a full career's worth of kingship at that point. There are clear secular advantages to Jerusalem. It had a year-round spring, it's a good defensive location, it's located on a major set of roadways, and though the area technically belongs to the tribe of Benjamin, having been conquered from the Jebusite Canaanites, 
there was no political legacy within the city for David to contend with. In Hebron, there were generations of Jews of all kinds that would have had their uh, political histories, but this is basically a new city. Now, religiously, it's long been believed that Jerusalem was the same city as Melchizedek's Salem, the home of the high priest that Abraham met with way back in the patriarchal age, so that may have also been a factor if that was believed during the time of David. It may be that the writers of both Samuel and Chronicles just took for granted the specialness of the city and simply forgot to include the details here. But anyway, having conquered the city and made it his capital, we transition into a new phase of the narrative, one in which David's history is summarized by topic rather than chronologically. Now, this is actually extremely typical of Near Eastern royal accounts, and though some literalists complain about interpreting it this way, we actually do plenty of modern history topically rather than chronologically from time to time. And so first up, we hear about his construction projects, which in traditional Mesopotamian narratives feature quite prominently, but given the relatively limited resources of Israel, David probably had far fewer opportunities to boast here. Now, he fortifies the city. He contracted to King Hiram of Tyre to supply luxury materials to build the palace. He built something called the Millow, and uh, Solomon is also going to do some construction on this Millow which may have been a set of terraces at the base of his fortifications to prevent natural erosion or possibly to prevent enemies undermining the walls, digging a tunnel just like David may have done to get into the city. Uh, but what exactly the Millow is isn't well understood. This is just sort of speculation, but a lot of these construction projects would have been later in his reign, both because he needs to build up his wealth and he needs to spend the time to get stuff built, but also because Hiram of Tyre is mentioned in the Jewish historian Josephus and by a Greek named Menander of Ephesus. And on the basis of these secular histories, Hiram seems likely to have lived at the tail end of David's reign and the start of Solomon's. His base now established, and his domestic enemies now defeated, David turns outward, and apparently the Philistines turn on him as well. Over in Chronicles, we get a listing of David's most notable warriors, some with war stories attached. Following Samuel, we get something that looks a bit more like a narrative, though could just as easily be just scattered war stories from a career of violence against the Philistine enemy. Now, having just spent so long discussing why Saul named his children Baal, we get to the story of Baal Perizim. David goes to a place called Baal Perizim. Then he defeats the Philistines in that place. Then he announces... This battle was like the Lord God, breaking through my enemies like a flood. 
And so he names the place Baal Perazim. Not Boshef Perazim, mind you. David uses the name Baal here. The meaning is either the god Baal breaks through or the Lord, that being a title for Yahweh, breaks through. Now, unlike Saul, who is under a cloud of suspicion anyway, we all know that David is a good monotheist who never does anything God disapproves of, except for, you know, taking a census and being a man of war and failing to discipline his children and being overly proud and the whole Bathsheba thing. But none of those count because David's our hero. So there's simply no way he could possibly be worshipping Baal. And so we are forced to conclude that either monotheism simply didn't exist in early Israel at this point, or Baal, meaning Lord, was a commonly accepted name for Yahweh. And there may or may not have been aspects of syncretism involved in that. Unless you think I'm being dismissive here, there are extremely convinced and convicted scholars arguing both sides of this. But whatever you decide for David, you have to, I mean, you don't have to, but it's really hard to not decide the same thing for Saul and his family without having a double standard with which we evaluate history. Next in our topical list, generally assumed to have been pretty soon after the conquest, because that's what makes David seem most pious, is the tale of the Ark of the Covenant. I will say some people do put this very late in David's career, but we're just going sort of in order. Now, the Ark has been sitting in Kiriath-Jerim at this point, which is another ball connection. The city had originally been called Kiriath Baal, or City of Baal. But when Joshua conquered it, they changed the name to Kiriath Jerim, or City of Woods, a much more neutral name, far less pagan, probably. Woods are actually sometimes um, pagan holy sites. But let's... I don't know. And yet for some reason, Though the chronicler still refers to this town as Kiriath-Jerim, the book of Samuel, much closer in history to the events mentioned, calls it baal judah which could either be translated the god Baal of Judah or the lords of Judah, definitely in the plural, though the question of God and grammatical plurals has also been debated for a very long time. I'm sure you can see the issues here, though, related again to why the Ark is at a place which may or may not be named Baal. Anyway, David wants to move the Ark from this questionably named place into his new capital, for what I hope are obvious reasons. However, in his haste, his Levites don't follow instructions correctly, and one of them dies. So they pause for three months and then try again. Now David, this whole time, is singing and dancing for joy. Not the 
not those three months, during the uh, movement phase of the Ark of the Covenant. Apparently, now, while David is singing and dancing, he's apparently quite like me. He danced with far more, shall we say, enthusiasm than he, with talent, which is fine in the eyes of God, but mocked in the eyes of his wife, Michal. And after that, Michal went from favorite wife to least favorite wife and never bore any children. As the wise philosophers, men without hats, once said, because your friends don't dance, and if they don't dance, then they're no friends of mine. After this, David gets permission from the prophet Nathan not to build the temple giving the favorite king a pass for neglecting on what would have been a basic duty for any other Near Eastern monarch to erect and patronize temples. He does, however, organize and patronize the Levites and the tabernacle, which may well have counted in the eyes of the general public. Then David wrote some hymns and some prayers for the occasion. Then we learn more about his wars. Again, we shouldn't see this as a chronological account, so much as a listing of victories and probably an omission of all politically inconvenient defeats. First, he defeats the city of Gath, and really his back-and-forth relationship with that city is an underappreciated tale. He builds an initial reputation fighting Goliath of Gath then ends up as a Gathite mercenary and a Gathite vassal, then abandons them, and then conquers them. Now, there's the seed of a good movie here. Anyway, his next target is the Moabites, and we hear the fun story that, you know, you know, one time, after a battle, the Moabite army had surrendered, and so David split them into three groups. Then... He murdered everyone in the first two groups of bound and helpless captives who had surrendered. Chronicles doesn't include this story, but does mention that David really wasn't worthy of building the temple because he was a man of war. Now after that, David goes to war against the northern Arameans, the same guys who have been vexing the Assyrians around the same time. We saw that back in episodes 101, 102, and 104, which, in fairness, is quite a while ago now. Uh, but we do get some impressive numbers here. They're a bit hard to evaluate, like all of our numbers here. The truth is that they're not insane numbers, at least not compared to the numbers we see from major empires of the region in terms of army strength and things like that. And this question gets us uh, to something we're going to look at when we get to Solomon, but just how poor was Israel at this time and just how rich was Solomon? Archaeology is giving us strong indications that any United Kingdom in this period would have been relatively poor by the standards of the Late Bronze Age. Indeed, everyone was poor by the stand those standards at this time. And so, we might think that David's claim to have beaten an army of 20,000 men and a 1,000 chariots might be exaggerated. 
But if we assume, as is traditional, based on taking the biblical claims largely at face value, that the kingdom under David, and especially Solomon, is roughly on par with the diminished empires of the same time period, and then plus the fact that the Arameans are a pretty significant power at this point, these numbers do become more plausible. We do get a nice breakdown of the regional politics here. David only attacks one Aramean city, Zobah, ruled by its own king, and not all the Arameans at once. That king, by the way, is called Hadad-Ezer, meaning the wind god Adad is my helper, and that Ezer is the same as the Hebrew Ebenezer, or is used to refer to Eve in Genesis as Adam's helper. Which just reminds us that though we've broken up Canaan into a whole bunch of polities and ethnicities, a lot of them are speaking basically dialects of the same language, or at most extremely related languages. Not the Philistines, obviously, but all the rest of the Canaanites. Anyway, Zobah calls for aid from what's probably a coalition of allied Aramean cities, including the powerful city of Damascus, the same Damascus which still sits in Syria today. David ultimately wins and takes a bunch of plunder, plus what appears to be the first 100 chariots of the Israelite army, an important prestige weapon, even if the army seems to be doing quite well on a purely infantry basis. David also fights Edomites, Ammonites, and Amalekites during his reign, expanding the borders of Israel significantly beyond the modern-day borders, though with much less coastline than the modern nation holds. Because that's where, of course, the powerful Phoenicians and Philistines were. Following this, the Samuel account gives a little story of how David finds the last surviving member of Saul's household, Jonathan's son Meribaal, who gets the derisive epithet Mephibosheth, a little disabled boy who gets put on pension in David's household just to show that even though David has been kind of the indirect cause of the almost complete destruction of Saul's house. Wow, that David sure is a nice guy. Mephibosheth then goes on to be completely unimportant for the rest of his life. Now all this today has been pretty much peak David. This is as good as it gets for our favorite king. Israel has some more rising to do, reaching its peak with Solomon. But before we get to that, we have the downslope for our favorite king and some of his most famous stories. The Ammonites are going to beat him. There's going to be a rebellion against him. There's the whole Bathsheba thing. And worst of all, worst of all, he's going to take a census. God really hates the census. So join us next time as we hopefully close things out with King David and move slowly, slowly, slowly towards the really fun history, which, as far as I'm concerned, starts with the divided kingdom. But who knows how long that's going to take at this rate. Thank you for listening.